I'm Dorothy Wickenden. On today's Politics and More podcast, The New Yorker's Gia Tolentino, Alexandra Schwartz, and Doreen St. Felix tell David Remnick about the movies and TV shows that helped them cope with a politically tumultuous 2018. As we look back on 2018, I wanted to talk about the year in culture, the high points and the low points, the complicated and the problematic points. And we'll do it with three of the keenest observers I know, Gia Tolentino, Doreen St. Felix, and Alexandra Schwartz, all staff writers at The New Yorker. And I asked each of them to come in with one big story for the year in pop culture. Gia, let's start with you. What did you bring in for us today? Let's talk about A Star is Born. Oh, let's please. (laughs) The event that brought America together, arguably the only event of the year that brought America together. It's the fourth remake of the 1937 classic. Round two was Judy Garland. Round three was Barbara Streisand. Round four is Gaga. Oh, I loved it. I loved it too, and everybody (laughs) loved it. Some people did not love it, but I loved it. <laughs> I mean, but everyone kind of loved but it. But why did you bring us all together, Gia? What, what's your thesis on this? Well, I think it really all starts with the song. It starts with The Shallow, <laughs> which um, every time I've heard it in public around people, like at karaoke or at a bar or at a wedding, for example, it's like the whole room is just like defibrillated by the melody. I mean, it is so, <laughs> it is so good. I hope we can play a tiny clip from it. It's that song. It's the centerpiece. If we play a clip, we need to play the primal roar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hope we can play a little bit of the primal roar. So that just sends your heart a-leaping. Well, you know, there was, it was also one of the most sincere pieces of pop culture of the year. I mean, it was so straightforward. It was so sentimental. Um, And at the same time, it had this built-in camp value, even the movie itself wasn't campy, of, you know, Bradley Cooper out here looking like, you know, with a face the color of, you know, a 400-year-old, like, leather saddle, and Lady Gaga playing, you know, this fresh-faced ingenue, you know, the opposite of her actual persona. And there was so much camp value in the two personas that the main actors inhabited that it we got, like, pure sincerity, pure irony at the same time. Great songs. Hard to argue with it. Also, can I say how good it feels to see an ingenue who's in her 30s? Like, I know, you know, it's she's not 19. David, you're giving me a look, but seriously. <laughs> I'm just happy when somebody's you know, <laughs> in spitting distance. <laughs> no, so... What, so what are the biggies this year? Doreen, do you have a nomination for things that brought us all together or thrilled you to death this year? Um, I want to talk about two movies in tandem being Black Panther, which actually did come out this year. I thought it came out three years ago because this year has been a decade long. Um, we and age more slowly, at least. <laughs> we truly do. And uh, John Chu's Crazy Rich Asians. And I think it's useful to think about these movies together because, A, they're two of the most commercially successful films, not only domestically but internationally, which then ended up igniting these conversations about can you create juggernauts on non-white actors in the star system? And the answer, of course, has always been yes, but I feel like this year people like really had to reckon with that. Um, and what I also love about the conversation that these movies inspired was that these movies are basically total fantasies, right? 
Black Panther is based on the comic, and then Crazy Rich Asians is based on this fiction novel. But people were having serious, almost to the point of humorless conversations about, you know, can I see myself in the story? <laughs> and, at, you know, on the one end for me, it's like kind of depressing because there have been such a dearth of stories that allow non-white spectators to even like think about the question of seeing themselves. But on the other hand, it's really exciting that we can have movies where the onus is not only on these audiences to to support them, but also to kind of like critique them in these like fun um, and exciting ways. Well, what did you like and not like about those two films? Well, I guess Black Panther, the question is, is this film advancing this propaganda of, you know, in an alternative history, black, all black people were kings when it's like the history is there. We were not all kings. And then there was also the weird thing of, black Americans going to see this film in the theater in like dashikis that they bought on 125th Street that, that came from China, <laughs> you know? Right. Um, and so obviously there's... It's globalism, Doreen. I've heard about <laughs> yes. it. Yes. Um, so the romance that audiences experienced with Black Panther, I would say a little bit more than Crazy Rich Asians, but they can be compared. It just really makes me feel enthusiastic to see adults, to see young children, to see all these people come together and be like totally reduced to fanboys and fangirls. I keep thinking the same thing, too. Like step two will be when these are not received pedagogically. Right. You know, and for me as an Asian person, it's like step three will be when the move the first movie about with a full cast of Asian people doesn't have Asians in the title. <laughs> and I think wasn't the deal with Crazy Rich Asians that they had gotten offered more money to do it at Netflix or something, but they Oh, I didn't know I think, that. I think I think the Yeah, I think they wanted didn't they want like a big theater distribution as they a really yeah, yeah, right. And I love that. No, but you know, I heard this conversation in the early nineties. Joy Luck Club came out. And it, it hasn't there hasn't been one since then. Exactly. Here come yes. the liberation of movies about Asians and Asian Americans and all the all the rest, and it didn't happen at all. Yeah. Now, do you fear that that's going to be the case? Do you fear that that's going to be the case with Black Panther? Uh, honestly, I don't think that there's any way that this does not inspire like an entire like cottage industry of these films. Um, part of it also is that the because we're better people, or because there's money to be made. I think there's a lot more money to be made, and also these. Um, we're talking about the industry system here. We're talking about producers, the fact that Kugler is directing this film. It is, from top to bottom, a black-produced film. I think when you're in these positions of power, you know, these are the people who are, like, making decisions. And the fact that there are a lot more people of color there than there were a generation ago, I think that's how you get, you know, Black Panther opened this year, and then you have Creed that's closing it. I think Creed just, like, went over $100 million, and it's not even that good of a movie. It's, it's, I'm afraid it's not. <laughs> but, but, but that's when, like, Kugler passed it to his old classmate he at did. USC, right? It's not even a—and and it's and this whole franchise is already solidified as this, like, I can't wait to see the next three bad ones. Like, I love it, you know? <laughs> now, Alex, you, you came in today to talk about? Queer Eye, the return of Queer Eye. <laughs> On Netflix. Nice. On Netflix, which— like Black Panther came out in February, but it already feels like it's been about 10 years in the culture. So many responses and think pieces and then counter think pieces. And it's been amazingly less than a year. Um, so I watched Queer Eye when it was first a, a series on Bravo about 350 million years ago. How is the, the new version radically different from the first? Well, I was very skeptical when I heard that Queer Eye was getting a reboot because the whole point of the first series, which I think aired, I think it came out in 2003. And so 
aired maybe between 2003 and 2007, was kind of this idea of making queerness and gayness more tolerable to the mainstream American viewer. It was like the Will and Grace project continued, but with a little more sass. And I thought, well, that is so outdated for 2018 America, not all of America, but for much of, you know, American culture has moved way beyond that. And it turned out that what this queer I did was basically flip the equation and make masculinity and often white masculinity the kind of exotic object that was being critiqued. I think part of the pleasure of Queer Eye first was this, it's sort of a fantasy of cross-cultural understanding. You have... How does the show work? The show works. You have these five guys who are called The Fab Five arrive in, I think, both seasons of the show, both of which came out this year, were in Georgia, kind of near the Atlanta area, but sometimes in rural Georgia. And they arrive at the house of a person who in the show's terminology is called The Hero to basically spend a few days with that person, look into their lives, get their lives together. It means going through their fridge and throwing out all the stuff in it, going through their bathrooms and throwing out all the stuff there, just kind of getting them up a notch in terms of, you know, self-presentation. and um, But I will just say that there was something at the beginning of 2018 felt so bleak. And to have this kind of fuzzy, friendly five guys pop out of a car and just run into your house and, you know, rearrange your life, there was something that felt very heartwarming about that. Um, and as far as the masculinity side of it goes, a big part of the show is watching women walk into their new houses and cry. They're just looking at these houses that, you know, they've been basically primarily responsible for and their husbands and boyfriends have suddenly, I mean, they haven't exactly redone the house, but suddenly things are looking up. This was a very soothing experience towards the beginning of Me Too to kind of see the women react in this way. Yeah. It's funny that we all picked these, like, uplifting, you know. Yeah. It's just, well, the other that's one is, like, I... Mrs. Maisel, right? It's, like, this thing with this, like, uh, possibly false, like, you know, like, Yeah, it's, like, televised of... Xanax, basically. Yeah, yeah exactly. Well, is that is that what's happening here? Is that the it's year was be- to me. between between like, Me Too and good? Trump is so miserable, is so immiserating? Well, I I have thought that you know, so this year we've had um, like part of the appeal of, the, of A Star Is Born as well clicks into something about Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, about Vox Lux, about Suspiria. Like post Me Too, there is a certain kind of interest in female stardom and how it is manufactured and the cost of that stardom in different right. ways. Yeah. And I think you can even put it in a broader context and see how 2018 has inherited the irony of the past decade and responded with like almost saccharine earnestness. Another show that I completely drown myself into all the time is The Great British Oh yeah, Bay I've Dog. never seen it. Everyone oh, Alex and I have tweeted about it. Oh, it's this. heaven. <laughs> It's absolute heaven. Gia, you have to go home and watch you every really single episode. I, yeah, I mean, I, I trust you guys. I will. It's people being nice that? to each other, making You're things making that muffins. taste delicious, and nobody— They are making much more complicated <laughs> things than muffins. Okay, here's my question. Does it <laughs> make you hungry? Have you ever had a hungry? game pie? The game pie, not so much. <laughs> but the puff pastries? Like, like, will it be one of those shows that, like, right. I'll be like, I need to, like, make a cake? Oh, absolutely. I tried to make a chiffon cake. <laughs> How did it go? Horribly. <laughs> I've actually had the opposite experience. I felt totally relieved of any burden to ever bake. I just, I realized that there are so many people who are better at this in the world sure. and I can just buy what they make and right. it feels really good. Yeah, it's yeah, guilt free. Yeah. Does, it, does this influence your reading as well? Or is it mostly a, a movie and TV thing? I have found, you know, there have been lots, like there was a wave of fiction this year that was dystopian, you know, like Handmaid's Tale, you know, version 3.0, like Red Clocks and The Power and, uh, you know, all of these kind of on-theme female dystopias. And I found myself completely unable to read any of them or the so-called like Me Too, first wave of Me Too fiction. I found myself 
not like needing to use fiction a different way this year. Hmm. Right, because reading that kind of fiction, it requires a kind of like really active um, descent into the world, whereas I think we're all describing films and television shows that require much less of the viewer and that are almost passive experiences. Mm -hmm. Now, are there shows or movies that are coming around next year in 2019 that you're really looking forward to? Veep is coming back. Can't wait. I've never watched Veep. Oh, Doreen. It's going to be so good when, <laughs> it, when you Christmas finally... Yeah, 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 it's so good. I mean, Veep is... Veep used to be my total comfort food because... Right, it might not be funny anymore. Well, during the Obama years, you could just watch the spectacle of crazy incompetence and selfishness and know what a, you know how outlandish it was. And as soon as reality overtook it, it became very cringy and uncomfortable for me. So I'm really curious to see what this yeah. new season will be like. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I, in general, just adore that show. Right. Well, it's one of the reasons that, like, SNL is just—it will never be funny until um, Trump's out of office. Yeah, like, it's just, I would it's, really love to see SNL kind of go by the wayside. Are, are you, like, Doreen, are you fed up with SNL? I'm fed up with people pretending that SNL is trenchant in any way. Yeah. Um, Do you think, it's it, you, think it's you think it's toothless? Um, it's not quite that I think it's toothless. I just don't think that it actually—the show has always, obviously, historically been so obsessed with itself and its own wit, but it's like wit is not the language that— makes any kind of impression in the Trump era. That's something that like made sense for Obama, who was the king of witticisms and all this stuff. I think that, I mean, to me, the, everything they've done in the Trump era is just taking exactly what happened and then having SNL actors redo it as it happened, you know? And, and it's like, it's it, nothing changes. They're, they can't intensify it because it's already so intense. It's right. Effectively, they're just replaying everything that I think playing it's, the news. yeah it's like what Tina Fey did with Sarah Palin and now that turns out to be kind of every skit um but there also becomes a degree to which basically just completely transposing actual events but with a tone of mockery is not a way of responding to actual events so uh, what I'm hearing is that you've all had it with the Alec Baldwin doing Trump oh, oh yeah <laughs> we thank you for your service but please get <laughs> out time to step down and, and- Everyone always talks about Alec Baldwin as Trump, but I think that it was Melissa McCarthy as Sean Spicer that was like beyond the uncanny. <laughs> yeah, it was great. impersonation. It was genius. Um, I mean, it happened 17 years ago, but yeah, when it did, it was. It, it was seems great. like that, right? It seems like that. Thank you all, and we look forward to a better year. And God knows what the effect on TV and movies will be. <laughs> Thank you, Gia, David. Gia Tolentino, Alex Schwartz, Doreen Saint Felix. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. 